Call the interviews. Hi, this is Burt Ward, Robin from the TV series Batman. You're listening to a fantastic interviewer, Steve Brittenham, on Hollywood and Beyond. Wowie Zowie Citizens to the Batmobile. Hi, this is Carrie Mitchum. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. You can contact host Stephen Brittingham anytime by email. Send your thoughts or feedback to hollywoodandbeyondshow at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. And now, here's your host, Stephen Brittingham. Selected clips and music appear courtesy of Aaron Spelling Productions and The Love Exciting and new Come aboard We're expecting you And love Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, passengers. I did indeed say passengers because my special guest is the immensely talented man who brought Burl Gopher Smith to vivid life on Aaron Spellin's television masterpiece, The Love Boat. Hi, friends and listeners. This is your host, Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening and joining me today. Fred is here to share some memories of his time on The Love Boat, as well as his own artistic journey. Millions of television viewers cherished the ship's purser, Gopher, and millions still do to this day. It's an open smile On a friendly shore It's love Welcome aboard, it's love Fred's appealing performance is equaled by his comedic and dramatic skills as an actor all resulting in a memorable character. Fred Grandy, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, sir. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, that, uh, that introduction goes very nicely with the $10 residual check I just got from Zimbabwe. <laughs> well, hey, that goes well together then. Still an international <laughs> hit around the world. Um, and it's, it's somewhat mystifying to me, but the show is kind of ageless. And and seems to pick up generations as it as it matures. It's very interesting that you mentioned that, Fred, because, yes, I'm going to show my age here a little bit, but it's worth it. Uh, growing up in the 80s, I was able to actually watch it while it was airing on ABC. However, many decades went by, and I really had been away from the show until recently, now that it's available on first CBS All Access that has now become Paramount Plus. They have mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. the seasons, uh, HD, vibrant color and sound. And wow, Fred, I am, I'm just re-experiencing everything and I'm enjoying every moment too. Well, based on your endorsement, I may have to watch it myself because uh, there were entire seasons that I never even saw. So... <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, I, I highly recommend that to you. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take it up. I'll get right on that. <laughs> and I just started season four, so I'm a little bit ahead of you. But uh, I tell you, it's hard to stop at one, too. If I have some extra time, I go through two or three episodes, no problem at all. 
Well, you're you're a better audience than I ever was then, Stephen, because uh, I I was one of those actors that um, believed much more in the process than the product. I mean, I always liked being on the set. I always liked doing the takes. I always liked performing uh, either in front of the camera or, or later in front of an audience. But once that was over, I had a very hard time watching myself because I was one of those very finicky performers that whenever I would see myself, I'd usually cringe and say, oh, God, I wish I'd done that a different way. Or, oh, no, I, I, why did I do that? Um, and, and so, and I've, I've, I don't think I've ever outgrown that really. I'm just, I'm just a little bit too, I think, precious for my own good. Well, very understandable. I know exactly what you're trying to say there. And, but I can tell you, and I hope I can assure you, Fred, I mean, you gave just an outstanding, such a enjoyable performance, uh, no doubt about it. Oh, sure. You tell me this now after 15 years of therapy. <laughs> Thanks. Well, better late than never, I suppose. Yeah, but... <laughs> all right. Whatever. Well, Fred, uh, before we discuss your adventures on The Love Boat, how did your journey as an actor begin, and why did you even want to become an actor? Well, I think that I was um, precocious as a kid. And um, always liked to be the center of the tension. I was the third child of three boys, and I was the post-war child. And um, if you grow up in that environment, um, you consider yourself, I think, somewhat unique because you're almost always an accident. You know, your dad gets home from the war and he's got two kids and he says, well, this is great. And then his wife says, oh, by the way, there's another one on the way. And and so that that I think to some degree conditioned how I felt. My mother uh, was always very supportive of my actually appalling behavior, Stephen. It was uh, I was a naughty kid and and uh, precocious and and uppity and um, a wise ass pretty much from the time I could speak. So um, all of that kind of played into a desire to perform and and quite honestly although I have done many other things uh, career-wise in my life, at that age, really up until um, I actually began um, earning money for performing, I, I really never thought I could do anything else. And I really never wanted to do anything else. Um, now, I want to I wanna distinguish between acting and performing. Because Please obviously, do. as a kid, I was showing off and, and, and you know, garnering attention, and, and I, I loved all that. And that, I think, really did, didn't wear off until I was well into my 50s. <laughs> um, <laughs> so when I was on television, whether I was doing Love Boat or many of the other shows that I did, um, and even when I was in New York uh, starting out as a young actor, I really wasn't into being an actor as much as I was in to being a celebrity that had enormous appeal for me. I, you know, and when love boat became a hit, I thought, my gosh, this is a dream come true. Now I can be on match game and Hollywood squares 
and Battle of the Network stars, and I can do summer theater and headline, and I can, uh, you know, I can do the Tonight Show, uh, and and all of those things really figured more prominently into my vision of myself than the actual craft of acting. I really didn't get into that until, as I said, I I was 51 or two, and I decided, because I was in Washington at the time, um, to apply for, and when I say apply for, I mean audition for a very specific master's program in classical acting, most of which was Shakespeare, which was uh, conducted by Michael Kahn. Now, I don't know if you know who Michael Kahn is, but he is the founder and creator and seminal mind behind, behind the Washington Shakespeare Theater, which is one of the most prominent Shakespeare companies in the United States. And for many, many years was a uh, principal instructor at Juilliard. So he is known and revered throughout the theatrical world. And he decided um, in the early 2000s, I think this would have been 2000, 2001, something like that. He was going to create this master's program, this very intensive master's program for people who were in the business, but wanted to upgrade their skills. And I happened to be at a kind of crossroads, uh, a, um, a lull in, in whatever career uh, or or profession um, I had I had been in and, and foresaw myself doing. So I said, I'm going to apply for this and see if I get in. And I got in. And it was intense. It was uh, 12 months, five days a week, nine to six. Uh, and of course, most master programs uh, or graduate degree programs are leisurely spaced over two or three years. And you, you go to a class maybe once or twice a week, and then you do research and, and um, luxuriate. Um, this master's program was a sprint all the way, and I loved it. But I also discovered I really wanted to know and master the craft of acting. And that's the way I've been since. That's why I spend most of my time now, although I do a fair amount of television still, I spend most of my time in live theater because that to me is more rewarding um, than appearing in front of a camera in a somewhat hermetically sealed environment, which is a soundstage. I really admire uh, all of that, Fred, because, I mean, you're really trying to evolve with your craft, but not just a little bit, as much as you possibly can. And I think that's one of the exciting things about acting is that, you know what, no matter how good you are, there's still more to learn. It's like a never-ending process. And I really well, you know, admire it, it, and respect that. It's interesting because um, something that Harry Truman said years ago has always stuck with me. Uh, and I was I was guilty of this because when I was in TV and I was on a hit show, uh, I really thought I knew it all. And Harry Truman used to say to college kids who thought they knew it all, it's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. And, and exactly. I think that's that's probably truer now than it was when I was actually um, a quote unquote star or celebrity or prominent TV persona, whatever, whatever you want to call me. Um, and so that's, that's a guiding force for me now is that, you know, once I learn it all, all I have to start all over again. Well, you're such 
a talented actor and and I have no doubt that that you can do so many extraordinary things. I know that you can surprise people too with your talents. I mean, you were already so talented during the Love Boat. And the thing that I admire about you, Fred, is I noticed your comedic timing and skills. And here's what I like to say. You know an actor's good when they make really good choices. And you just, you kept surprising me episode after episode. When I thought Gopher would react this way, well, many times he didn't. And I really liked that. And um, so that's very interesting that you still wanted to fine-tune your your instrument or however you want to label it. And, and I really admire that. Now I'm curious, Fred, yeah. you attended Harvard university. Uh, was did. theater something that you were doing while there? Well, yes and no. I mean, I got down to Harvard and I did uh, a couple of shows, a couple of undergraduate shows, but what really became my seminal experience in the theater and, and guided me really into the profession um, was responding to an ad that was placed in the Harvard Crimson. I think it must've been when I was a sophomore and the ad was pretty simple. It said dollars for talent. And what it was, was a uh, group of um, this, this guy was a, a writer and, and, Another guy was a producer and they were trying to put together a, um, a company, a small company, uh, to do political satire, topical political satire at a little theater they were carving out in Inman square, which was the next subway stop after, after Harvard square. And for some reason or another that appealed to me. So I went and I auditioned and, and there were a few scripts to read, but mostly it was improvisational. It was right off the top. And of course, because I knew everything then just the way as I know everything now, um, I, I just started improvising and they liked it. And, and I was hired and that show became the proposition, which was a very famous, um, topical satirical review that ran in Boston for years and, and started people like me and Jane Curtin and Paul Kreppel and uh, a number of people who, um, who went on and, and really thrived in the business. And eventually I had left the show by the time I left college, but it evolved into an entirely improvised evening uh, based on audience success, uh, suggestions similar to Second City in Chicago or the committee in San Francisco when it was still around, or the uh, Upright Citizens Brigade now in, in Los Angeles. And it went down to New York and thrived there as an off-Broadway show at a place called the Mercer Arts Center. And when I actually decided I was going to throw caution to the winds and move to New York, um, as a young guy and really begin my acting career seriously, that was the show that I went to and I was able to get in because I had a certain amount of reputation there. So, so improvisational theater really was something that began at Harvard and then morphed into, uh, well, certainly a job, if not a career down in New York before I started, um, actually going up and, and getting into into plays. 
I see. Well, how did the idea or the desire to move out west to Hollywood uh, develop for you? Well, that wasn't my choice, really, Stephen. I um, I had been. I, I was in a two-character play off Broadway that was getting a lot of buzz. Um, it was me and James Woods. You know, you know who Jimmy Woods is, right? Yes, sir. Okay, all right. So J- Jimmy Woods and I were in this play, and and we were getting a fair amount of buzz. And Norman Lear's casting director came to see the show, and apparently. Norman Lear had just uh, premiered uh, a new show called Maud, which starred B. Arthur and, and Conrad Bain and Rue McClanahan and, and um, Adrian Barbeau, who uh, played Maud's daughter. And for the second season, they decided they wanted Adrian Barbeau to have a boyfriend. And this woman, uh, I'm trying to remember, her name was Jane Murray. And she came to see me in this show. It was called Green Julia. Uh, and, and Jimmy Woods and I were playing a couple of uh, British undergraduate students. Um, and there was a lot of comedy in the show. So she uh, went back to Hollywood and said, hey, you know what? We ought to take a look at this kid um, that's getting a little bit of play in, in New York. And they flew me out to uh, Hollywood. Uh, and... Uh, put me up at a motel across from T- CBS Television City, which is on Fairfax Boulevard. Yes. And and uh, I went over there and I auditioned. And uh, Norman was there and uh, a bunch of other um, heavyweights. And I went back to this hotel, this motel, and the phone rang and she said, you rang the bell, you got the job. <laughs> wow. So so I went out and, and did, uh, we moved out there. I had, I had, my my oldest daughter, who is now, um, well, she'll be 50 this year, um, was a baby. But we moved out to Los Angeles, and I, I um, did a season out there. And then I moved back to New York and then came back out. But the, that's, that's really what got me out to Hollywood in the first place and to some degree got me established. Um, I got an agent out in California because I had a show. And um, he was able to get me um, a few other auditions, which uh, also bore fruit. So that, that was, that's what happened. And the nice thing about it, Stephen, is it happened so fast and really so seamlessly that I never had time to really worry about it. I never had time to overly stress out about the audition or what's going on or what if I don't get it. I mean, I was 22, 23 years old. So uh, one of the things that really fortified me during that period was my naivete. <laughs> I had no idea uh, what was going on, and I, it just seemed terribly logical to me. And uh, uh, consequently, I never really had time to sit down, self-evaluate, contemplate my navel, and probably talk myself out of everything. So that was kind of a blessing in disguise, so to no, speak. No, it wasn't. It wasn't in disguise. It was. It was upfront and personal. It was. It was great. Um, and and although um, you know, I did go back to New York and did a couple of other shows in New York before I actually moved out to Hollywood again. Um, it was that. It was that experience that really 
conditioned me, I think, towards moving to the West Coast as opposed to staying on the East Coast, as as most of my performing friends did. You know, back at that time, Fred, I've heard many stories that many times agents were very colorful individuals, and I just didn't know if you happened to have one yourself at that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I had my agent in New York was a woman named Lily Veit. And I don't know if you ever, did you ever know who Conrad Veit was? Hmm. Conrad Veit That's was a really very know. famous German actor. He's in um, Casablanca. He's, he, he plays oh, one of the Nazi okay. commanders. Okay, um, gotcha. And um, so he was, he was very successful and very, very, um, um, very prominent, usually, you know, playing Nazis. <laughs> as, as gotcha. tended, tended to be most of the German roles in the, in the late 40s and 50s. But Lily, his wife, um, ran this, this agency called Kaplan Weit, and she was very German and, and no nonsense. And I would come in and she would say, now, Fred, you are going to get this job. I want you to both perform this way and when you do the show, you are going to do it this way. And and you you never said no to Lily White. So it was an yeah, yeah, Frau, yeah, Frau White. I'm going yeah, I'm going to do that, yeah. And so um she um she sent me out to Hollywood and she um she connected me with a guy named Mike Greenfield, who ran a small outfit called Charter Management, and he was as loose and crazy and erratic as she was regimented and disciplined. <laughs> and so between the two of them, I just careened back and forth. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was entertaining, but you're right back, back in those days, agents were much more hands-on. I remember I used to walk into Michael, we always called him Greeny, and we, I'd walk into his office and you could barely find the guy because his office was piled high with scripts and he was, <laughs> always reading them and throwing them aside. And, and now, at least recently, when I walk into an agent's office, and I don't do it a lot, but uh, the desk is empty, except for, of course, a laptop. And, of hmm. course, on that laptop are usually what they call the breakdowns of, of casting roles. But mm-hmm. I, I don't see, and maybe it's just because I'm not at that level, uh, but I don't see that... Um, submersion into the actual content that I remembered when uh, I was just starting out in New York. So, so I don't wish that I was just starting my career again. I can tell you that. Well, I can almost picture him smoking a cigar. I, I don't know if he did. He, um, he did not smoke a cigar. I don't gotcha. think he smoked. He's chewed a lot of gum. Um, okay, there you go. And, and he uh, got to have something—a lot of coffee, he, a lot of gum, he, or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was <laughs> frenetic. There was no question about that. But I—he he didn't quite conform to that stereotype of the cigar chomping. I see. And he was a young guy. He was not—he was not an old. Oh, okay. Guy. He was—he was—he was young and aggressive, and and uh, was constantly and working hard. It sounds like. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he would—he—he he was always doing four or five things at once. Um, I remember once he took me to a Dodgers game and he was, 
he, we were watching the Dodgers game, but he was listening to an angels game on the radio <laughs> and, um, he had bets on both games. So periodically he'd go call his bookie. Um, and, and mm. so consequently I just, I just learned to deal with it. I kind of liked it actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, well, thank you for sharing all of that, Fred. I enjoyed that very much. And, and this is a good tie in because before love boat, you mentioned Maud, but you were also on numerous shows, um, such as, uh, you know, Fantasy Island and Charlie's Angels and Mary Tyler Moore. And I'm wondering, Fred, um, what lessons were you learning the more you did these type of shows as an actor? Well, were, were you, it was just uh, the experience itself? Did you feel more confident after each uh, role that you had? Well, first of all, I want to differentiate between um, post-Love Boat and pre-Love Boat. Mary Tyler Moore, uh, Maud, I did this now, I think, a classic but, but obscure Saturday morning kids show called Monster Squad. Um, yes. And all of those shows were prior to Love Boat. After Love yes. Boat, the shows that you mentioned, Fantasy Island, Charlie's Angels, there were, used to be a cop show called Matt Houston. Um, all those were spelling products. So when, and this, we're now talking about television in the early 80s and late 70s, which was probably similar to what the Hollywood studios were like in the late 30s, when you had stables of actors. And Aaron had stables of actors. He had the cast of Charlie's Angels. He had us. He had Dynasty. He had uh, Starsky and Hutch for a while. He had a show called Heart to Heart with Robert Wagner and Stephanie Powers. And, and, and so what he would do is he would just recycle his performers through his various shows. Fantasy Island, Matt Houston, Charlie's Angels. Um, and it was great because you knew that if you were one of his players on one of his shows as a regular or a recurring character, you were also going to get three or four other shows to do during the course of the year. If he liked you and you usually weren't on his shows, if he didn't like you. So, so that, <laughs> that to me was, was what it must've been like being at MGM mm-hmm. in the late thirties when they were doing, you know, yes. things like gone with the wind and wizard of Oz and the, the, the supposedly golden age of Hollywood. This was kind of the silver age of television. Mm-hmm. Aaron was a huge power. There was a programmer at CBS and then ABC named Freddie Silverman, who was a huge influence on television. Grant Tinker was the same way. Of course, you had Norman Lear, you had Gary Marshall, and you had these moguls in television. You still do to a lesser extent, but the medium is so, um, is so bifurcated now with cable and streaming and, and so many different sources um, of production and, and distribution. When I was on television, there were three networks, four if you considered PBS, but nobody ever did. And so you had a captive audience. And that's one of the reasons I'm sure Love Boat was such a hit, because whenever there was a, a blizzard in Omaha, our ratings would go up 20 points. Uh, and, and you don't see that anymore. Television doesn't yes. have the, the somewhat 
uh, parlor room um, compelling quality that it had when your family would sit down at a certain time in the evening and watch Love Boat and Fantasy Island and then maybe, you know, another night the Waltons and another night uh, Ed Sullivan back in the day. Yeah, that That's not true anymore. Well, you know, Fred, you took me back to... Uh, I was raised by my grandparents, and my grandmother was a huge Dallas fan, as was I, and she would actually take the phone off the hook between 9 and 10 p.m. on Friday nights so she would not be disturbed. Well, I mean, that, that, the same <laughs> thing was true of, of Love Boat. There was, there was a, yes. a kind of devotion, adoration that, that almost bordered on, on sycophancy. I remember I was doing a play in New Jersey and there was a woman who was kind of attached to our show as a liaison and she had been a huge love boat fan. And she used to tell me that she would break dates on Saturday night to watch love boat. Uh, Oh, and you know, the one thing I never said to her, of course, was well, maybe that's why you're alone now, but (laughs) it it occurred to me. And, and so the, the, attractiveness, the compellingness, the the familiarity of these shows, whether it was Dallas or the Waltons or, or the, or the love boat or, or any of the shows that proliferated mash, of course, shows like that didn't just have fans. They had constituencies. They had extended families. And uh, I'm not sure that's as true today as it was then. I mean, obviously there are hits, um, and they get recycled. I mean, it's it's pretty hard to go on Facebook and not find at least one Seinfeld clip every three or four pages. But um, it's not the same. There's not quite the, I guess you'd have to say, the kind of family feel that these mm-hmm. shows had. It felt like an event. Like, it, you know, it was. I remember getting excited about getting the, the TV guide so I could go, okay, on Saturday night, I'm going to watch The Love Boat. And let me yeah. read the description. Oh, wow. I'm definitely going to be watching that. <laughs> You're right. You planned things ahead and you didn't want to miss it. No, no. It's, it, it was very much event programming. And, um, of course, because it became event programming, we very quickly, once we learned that we were not just a hit, but but a mega hit, that really uh, inspired Aaron and his partner, Doug Kramer, to begin to take the show on location, which is another thing you don't do much of anymore, because this was long mm-hmm. before computer graphic imagery and the, the virtual ways you can travel now. Um, and of course, there was no travel channel then. There were There were no... Uh, proliferating cable channels and streaming services that showed you parts of the world so that when you traveled, you traveled with us when we sailed around the world. And it's funny because um, a few years ago, I was a regular on a series called the Mindy project and um, working with people that, and Mindy, uh, Mindy Kaling, of course, being one had kind of grown up watching the love boat and many of the actors, um, big names, I mean, very successful actors um, were on that show. And uh, a couple of them would come up to me and, and say, well, no, did you actually go to those places? And I said, well, sure, everyone, wouldn't you? And they'd say, no, they do that in a, 
they do it by computer now. And I said, well, that's too bad because we went absolutely around the world, mm. first class all the way. And wow. uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it any other way. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm spoiled, <laughs> but that's, that's the way it is. And their jaws drop because that's, that's not the way they're treated anymore. I mean, obviously people like Tom Cruise and, and others are going to travel all over the world if they're doing mission impossible, but, but television, unless you're doing something that is huge budget and, um, off the charts, popular, like game of Thrones is pretty much going to be done on a soundstage and, and any special effects, any kind of travel, any kind of background is going to be simulated. We were never simulated. We did have what they called a process shot, which was, um, you know, you, you would see these scenes where two people would be standing at the rail on, on deck and you'd see the ocean behind them. Well, that was projected mm-hmm. on a screen and that was pretty standard. And that was, that was left over from the thirties. That had been a film technique for, for 30 years by the time we got to it. Um, but beyond that, if we were talking about going to China, we went to China. If we were talking about going to Australia, we went to Australia. Um, and we took people with them. So uh, it became a real feather in your cap and a real coup if you not only got cast on a Love Boat episode, but you got cast on a cruise. Well, Fred, I'm right with you. Nothing beats <laughs> on location of filming. <laughs> Absolutely. And... Um... Wow, I, I really enjoyed listening to that. Thank you. Well, I am so excited to ask you a few questions about your years on the love boat, but I did want to switch to film briefly, if you don't mind. Sure. I at least wanted to bring up a film that you did, I believe, in 1975, the mid-70s, and that is Death Race 2000, yeah, that a was Roger Corman production. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and Sylvester Stallone, David Carradine are also in the picture. I just want to know if you had any uh, uh, stories or memories you wanted to share about that experience. Well, first of all, whatever you think of Roger Corman, and he's, he's got a somewhat checkered reputation, um, he was a genius when it came to shooting things on and under budget. Um, this, I don't know if you ever watched the movie, but it was supposedly a futuristic um, tale about uh, a cross-country auto race where uh, you gain points by running over people. So it was it was somewhat grim. But given the scope of that, and and supposedly the arc, um, the the transcontinental arc of the story, we shot the whole thing at the Ontario Speedway in um, in three weeks. He cut it in four weeks and released it in five and made his money back in six. I mean, so that's, there you go. <laughs> that's how good, that's how good Roger Corman is now. Wow. And, and, you know, as a young actor, you don't, you, at least I didn't, you don't pick and choose your jobs. You're eternally grateful if somebody hires you. So I got hired to be on this show and it was a, it was a small part and it was, uh, it wasn't particularly challenging, but it, but it was, fun um, to sit in what was our green room, which was a, uh, a small trailer. And we would sit in there in the morning waiting to shoot and drink coffee and, and, you know, BS one another. And um, even at that age before, of course, he was famous. 
Stallone kind of held court in there. And hmm. and I remember one morning we were sitting there drinking coffee. And somebody asked and say, Sly, what are you doing besides this? And he says, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm writing a picture. I'm writing a movie. It's about a boxer. It's about a fighter. This is just what we need, right? Another picture about a fighter. Well, of course, that was Rocky. So, yes. Um, wow. And, and Stallone and I actually done a commercial together in New York years ago. Uh, oh, and I, wow. I, didn't, I didn't remember that until, yeah, for some awful product called Rapid Shave Cologne Scent. Um, mm. But anyway, yeah, I mean, that's, it, was, it was entertaining to be uh, around those guys. Um, Carradine was a little difficult, but, but he was somewhat removed from our group because he was the star and, and was not really interacting with us as much. Um, but, you know, those are just the rites of passage for actors. And uh, I, as I say, whatever else you thought about Roger Corman, he knew absolutely how to make money. He was to be pictures what Aaron Spelling was to series television, a guy who just hmm. had a sixth sense on how to create and market a product. And work fast, it sounds and like. And work fast. And work <laughs> fast. Wow. Well, thanks and for that, sharing By the way, that, that, whole that. Th- that whole thing about working fast is very important because television, of course, is a very fast medium. And I, um, I, I've seen that time and time again. And I know my son is now a, a writer in Hollywood and, and, um, is a comedy writer for the most part and to survive in that business. But the imprimatur of success as a comedy writer, certainly in television is to be funny, of course, but you also have to be fast. You have to turn it out quickly and it's gotta be funny. And, um, for one reason or another, my son essentially had, um, the equivalent of a Harvard law degree in comedy. He got out of school and his first job was on the daily show. When John Stewart was just coming in, his second job was Saturday night live. His third job was the office. And since then he's, he's just been on a glide path. Not everybody gets to do that. Wow. But one of, one of the things that he learned very early on because he was writing sketch comedy for people like John Stewart and Jimmy Fallon and people like that was you got to turn it out in a hurry and it's got to be funny. And he knows that. And that's, that's allowed him to succeed. I think probably beyond his wildest dreams. (laughs) Well, no doubt he is a very uh, talented man. No, I hope so. I mean, if I knew my kids (laughs) were going to be this successful, I would have had more of them. (laughs) Well, I am so excited to um, ask you some questions and listen to some memories and perhaps some stories from The Love Boat. And I'm really enjoying my conversation with you. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, this character and this show that is still cherished by so Mm -hmm. many today. Uh, So how did the opportunity to portray Gopher come about? Is there any story behind the audition, per se? There's really nothing too uh, revelatory about the audition. I, I got called to audition. I auditioned. I got a callback. I came to the callback, and I got hired. Um, unlike my colleague Ted Lange, who played Isaac, who never, whenever we're together, and 
that's quite a bit because we were just doing this play together last year or before the COVID, I should say. I lose track of time now. Um, I understand. But, you know, he, he never lets me forget that he never had to audition and I did. <laughs> but that's, that's fine. I, the only thing that really hit home to me was I learned a couple of seasons into the show that I was probably the only actor in Hollywood who had not been offered the show and turned it down. And I'm talking about people like Billy Crystal and, and others who wound up being guest stars on our show. The, the kissing saying, bandit. Yeah. 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 They said, <laughs> yeah, exactly. well, I, I, I wrote that show. Um, that was a great episode. Yeah. I wrote that show. Uh, it was Billy Crystal and Oh, that lovely girl from the Waltons, Lori Walters. Um, yes. and, and Pat Carroll. That was really good. And, oh, what was her name? Nancy, Nancy Culp. Remember Nancy Culp from, yes. uh, from uh, Beverly Hillbillies? Anyway, so, but the point is, I learned that really I was at the absolute end of the queue when it came to this, when it came to this role. <laughs> Everybody had said no. And so consequently, I guess I was the last man standing. Well, there you go. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, there there was another gopher (laughs) before me. You know that, right? I have heard about this. Yeah. Um, The the first pilot didn't have any of us. Uh, There was another gopher. There was another Isaac. There was another Doc. Wow. And the gopher in the first pilot was a guy named Sandy Helberg who um, I think his claim to fame now is he's the father of Simon Helberg, who, of course, has been on Big Band Theory and various other things. Um, But it was one of those situations where the network looked at the pilot and said, nope. And somehow, this was before Aaron became involved, um, the producers managed to get the network to give it another shot. And they did it again, and this time Ted and Bernie Coppell and I were in the pilot, and they still said no. And then Aaron took it over and said, okay, we're going to go again. And, of course, everybody couched out Darren Spelling back then. And then they did it again and brought in Gavin McLeod and Lauren Tweez, and then, of course, the rest is history. Um, but, no, I am not, I am not the, the quintess. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not the original gopher. There was a Jurassic period gopher before me. That's very interesting. What had you met any of your co-stars, um, your fellow castmates before this project, like chance meeting or other projects? No. Well, by no, chance? Uh, Gavin, Gavin, of course, because I'd done the Mary Terry Moore show. Gotcha. Uh, but but that was you know that was just hello, how are you? Nice to see you. I was on for yes. you know a few days. Uh, so that was that was really my only connection. Lauren Tweez was a, was a waitress on Hollywood Boulevard, Stephen. I mean, she was, wow. she was brand new and, and, and pretty much dare I use the word virginal when it came to, um, this kind of success. Uh, Ted had done a couple of series and of course, Bernie was, was famous, um, and had done everything. Um, so I knew who he was, but we'd never, we'd never worked together. Well, is it true that ABC more or less uh, did not really anticipate that the show would um, either do well or become a hit? Oh, both. Both. As a both. matter of fact, okay. <laughs> uh, the, 
here when we premiered and I'm, I'm trying to think it was either 1977 or 76, maybe I'm not sure because of all the pilots, the one that finally got through. But Aaron, when he took over the show, had two new series that he was going to put on ABC. One was The Love Boat, and the other was a thing called The San Pedro Beach Bums, which was kind of a Bowery Boys update um, with some very good actors, Christopher Murney and and some other guys. And, And that was the one that the network was really banking on. And because Aaron was powerful, they'd say, well, all right, Aaron, uh, we love San Pedro Beach Bums, and we'll give you the love boat, but we're going to put it on Saturday night at 10 o'clock, which was considered to be uh, a graveyard because it was opposite the Mm. Carol Burnett show. So Mm -hmm. they were essentially acquitting their responsibility to one of their biggest producers by buying his show. But just about everybody, including all of the critics, thought that Love Boat would essentially wind up in dry dock after two or three seasons, two or three episodes. Well, just the opposite happened. San Pedro Beach Bums crashed and burned. Love Boat not only uh, sailed away into the sunset, but it knocked Carol Burnett off the air, and then it knocked Kojak off the air. And it, it quickly became a third world power. So the only guy who really, well, there were two guys that really knew or believed the show would be a hit. One was Aaron Spelling, and the other was Gavin McLeod. Well, Fred, did you know that, like, like if you go back to, I'm talking like the first few episodes, were you ever told in advance that, you know, this show's concept is going to have some rotating guest stars? For example, some may come back later on as the same character or even a different character. Well, the whole premise of Love Boat was derived from a much smaller show that Doug Kramer had produced at Paramount called Love American Style, which was a little half-hour comedy sketch show, which I'd also done one of those. And it was little stories about love and romance um, with comic interludes, and they had guest stars. And that format was essentially grafted onto the love boat, but writ large, of course, an hour format, three stories. So the, the selling point of the series was always the guest stars, not, not the regulars. We were to some degree there to stitch the scenes together and act as a kind of interstitial ensemble. Um, while you were watching people like Florence Henderson and Harvey Corman and, and uh, Linda Evans and whoever else. But over time, the five characters and then six when Jill Whelan joined the cast um, became core elements of the storytelling and, and all of us began to get episodes that revolved around our lives and the, the passengers that we met. So we always knew there were going to be rotating guest stars. We just, we, we just didn't know from week to week who they were going to be. Um, and then over time, you know, you had people like Charo who, who came in and played this woman, April Lopez, that was essentially Charo under another name. Um, and then you had people yes. like Ethel Merman who came on a couple of times and played my mother and people like yes. Carol Channing who came on a couple of times and played, uh, Lauren Tweez's aunt and, and then, of course, we had guest stars 
who came back several times and played different roles. And that was just, yes. again, that was, that was again, the recycling of talent a la Hollywood in the late thirties. And that just, that became something that, that was considered to be instrumental in the success of the show. And what a wonderful concept. You know, for some reason, Fred, I, I'm thinking of Melissa Sue Anderson, because at this point with my rewatching experience, I believe she's been on literally three times. And you know what is so exciting about that is you get to see like her a more of an actor's range. Like she really is so different with each character. And I really enjoyed that aspect as well. Well, I'm you know, I, again... Almost every actor of distinction, from Ethel Merman to Helen Hayes to Vincent Price to Maurice Evans to Sid Charisse to Juliet Proust to Greer Garson, I mean, the, the list goes on and on, Olivia um, de Havilland, um, um, all of those people were welcomed onto the show and uh, enjoyed being on the show. Uh, there were always a few people. I mean, supposedly Orson Welles' tombstone says he never did love boat. Well, you know, we could live without him. And I guess he was too busy doing his Paul Masson ads or something. But so, so it, it was, it was after a while considered to be a gift from the business. If you got a love boat and, you know, one of the people that I've gotten to know really after the show because uh, I didn't know him too well when he was doing the show, was the actor Gregory Harrison, who's still around and, and working. And, and he used to say that, you know, they, they, would, they would always leap at the chance to do a love boat because it was fun, it was well-paid, it wasn't particularly a heavy lift, and best of all possible worlds, if you got a cruise out of it, then it was really a busman's Yes. <laughs> so, so it became, With a nice swimming pool and lots of food. Yeah, well, of course. So, I mean, it was it, it was it was a great way to treat people, and um, yes. so consequently, people were anxious to come back and do the show again. You know, Fred. Uh, just kind of continuing this topic, I'd like to mention that also classic Hollywood was such a part of the rotation of guest stars. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. You mentioned some amazing people, but I'd like to also add another one, if you don't mind, just to, to emphasize what we're talking about. I was watching an episode recently, and I went, why does this gentleman look so familiar? He's kind of tall. His face is kind of long and thin, uh, warm, friendly eyes. I was like, ah, that's the gentleman who portrayed this scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz back in 1939. I mean, oh, that yeah, is amazing. Yes, that is just, that is amazing. Now, did you ever, like, for example, let's say that episode, was there a good chance that someone would say to you or in the script that, hey, Ray Bolger is on this episode, or did you just show up and go, oh my goodness, there's Ray Bolger? That's what we did. You'd walk into the makeup room and there'd be Ray oh, Bolger. Wow. Or, um, um, well, I'm, I'm just about just about anybody. Uh, Raymond Burr, um, Red Buttons, uh, anybody, and and they would show up. And you you usually, unless word leaked out uh, about somebody in particular, 
you didn't know who was going to be on the show until you saw the call sheet the first day of shooting and you walked into the makeup room and there they were. Um, Now, Ted and I made a point out of trying to welcome these guys, these these icons. And and Ray Bolger was clearly one um, because they would always have stories to tell. And one of the great dividends of being on the love boat was all of the lore that was generated by people like Ray Bolger and, and, you know, he's much lesser known, but Billy Curtis, who was a little guy and one of the munchkins, uh, wow. on the original wizard of Oz, he came on the show and, you know, t- to see, to hear about the wizard of Oz from a munchkins <laughs> point of view was fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, really. I, I, and, I bet. And, and so, and then, you know, you'd have, you have people like Eddie Albert and of course, Betty White, who will outlive us all. Um, mm. and, and all kinds of, and one, one of the things that both Aaron and Doug Kramer found very early on was the, um, the reinvigoration of old film stars, um, uh, legends in their time, people like Lana Turner, um, and, and others, um, one person they they were always trying to get on the show, but they could not succeed, and there were obviously mitigating circumstances for that. Uh, was Nancy Reagan, and she, you know, I'm sorry, I, I don't really have time. I'm the first lady of the United States, but she was a huge fan of the show, and so much so that you know, after I got elected to Congress, I I was a freshman and I was just trying to wander around, figure out where I would go next. And I got an invitation to come down to the White House for dinner. They were having a state dinner. And I said, well, that's odd. I'm a freshman member of Congress. We don't get invited to these things. And plus, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not here to go to parties and stuff. I'm here to work. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty squared away. So I said, well, I really can't do that. And I got a call back about an hour later and said, uh, could you reconsider that? You're sitting next to the First Lady. <laughs> so, oh, wow. so I said, so I said, uh, let me change my tie and I'll be right there. <laughs> and, and so I sat next to Nancy Reagan and she wanted to talk about the show. She was a huge fan. Well, that's very nice. Yeah. I mean, well, well, you know, so, you know, you, you just, you never knew who was going to be impressed and, and motivated and influenced by the show. Um, whether it's Nancy Reagan or, or Mindy Kaling, who hired me many times or Tina, uh, um, Tina Fey was the same way. Um, so you, 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 we were beginning to assess as the show picked up steam and became more and more of a assess that it was having a profound impact, but we really, I don't think understood about the longevity of it until after the show was over. And I, we, you know, we still do reunion. We just did a reunion show a couple of weeks ago on this, um, this internet show called stars in the house that Seth Rudesky and his, his husband, James Wesley do where they go back and, and have reunions of shows like ours and the Waltons and, uh, Hill street blues and, and, and various other shows. Um, and there's still a huge audience for that. Um, so and obviously CBS access or Paramount or whatever they're calling themselves now would not put that show up if they didn't think people would watch it. Very true. Very true. And the picture, I mean, I think, don't get me wrong, I believe 
TV land shows reruns, and that's that's great. Yeah, but they do. The picture quality is not the same as what you're seeing on Paramount Plus. Well, I'll I'll leave that to you because you're watching it, and I'm not really watching it. But uh, yeah, I'm sure. Obviously, in this digital age, of course, we we predated right. digital age. We we there weren't monitors when we were shooting um, the Love Boat. Uh, it was one of those. Um, now, I suppose archaic techniques where you you shot what they would either call rushes or dailies uh, and you'd look at them the next day and then you'd have to decide whether you need to shoot them again now of course it's all instantaneous you watch it on a monitor and you do it again Mm -hmm. if you need to we never had that luxury and it was particularly challenging when we were on location well fred i have a question that i'm not sure perhaps anyone's ever asked you of course i could be wrong so let me give myself a little disclaimer but that is something I have noticed uh, being on the fourth season. The first two seasons, you have the same opening credits for mm-hmm. you and the other uh, characters. And then season three, they have some new ones. Uh, that's very normal. Uh, but I noticed something about yours. I, I love all the poses, by the way. Mm-hmm. And they're all great. But if I had to choose one, I would choose both of yours because I noticed that you are the one with the dramatic turnaround. <laughs> Like I mean, when the I turn around pl- and face the camera, yes, I, 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 and then a couple seasons later, well, they have you leaning on a rail, but guess what you do? You're looking away and then you turn around. <laughs> well, and I, I just want to say, I just think that's so neat. Well, I, I don't know if I was ever conscious of that, Stephen. I just um, still photographs just did it. and poses were always very hard for me. I never considered myself particularly photogenic, so I'd always have to create some kind of little scene for it. I, and, I liked it. You succeeded. And, and that's, that's what I did. Now, you, I, if you're going to ask me why I did it and what I did, I've forgotten completely. Maybe I never even allowed it to stay in my mind at the time. But um, it was just a matter of survival. How am I going to make this interesting? How is this going to be mm. just more than a, than a picture of me? Because, uh, you know, screen idol, I'm not. Uh, and, and so consequently I had to figure out what's my little scene here that I have to play. Well, that's one of my favorite poses. I love the turnaround. It's, it, it's, it's, it's uh, very effective and dramatic. So I like it. Uh, well, of course, if I turned the other way, I would be leaving the show. Probably. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know how, when the ship is going one way early on in an episode and at the mm-hmm. end, it's going the other direction. I finally figured that out. Like, Oh, they're <laughs> headed back home. Yeah. That's so, right. Well, Yeah, that was in the script, so we always knew where we were going. (laughs) Well, hey, here's another topic that I can't wait to bring up, okay? I literally can't wait to bring this up. And that is, I guess, after all of these years, Fred, you know, please forgive me, but, uh, you know, I I guess it it took me aback of how uh, much your character and the Doctor and even the Captain were often... um, pursuing the ladies the passengers on the ship and and i guess i had had for kind of forgotten the extent especially uh bernie's character the fact that he's such a casanova and uh i just wanted to bring up uh, how much i enjoyed that and often you and the the good doctor would 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 be vying for the attention of a beautiful lady but fred Mm -hmm. does this take you back you knew when a really beautiful woman stepped on board, and if the doctor was right there, you would hear the following. 
Oh, hi. <laughs> yeah. That's like he uses that catchphrase, and I, mm. I've just got a big kick out of that. Well, it was, uh, it became a kind of standing joke because um, the character of the doctor was always considered to be something of a Lothario, something of a, as you said, a Casanova. And of course, to Bernie, who had been playing people like Siegfried on on Get Smart and these weird characters to all of a sudden be in his own vivid imagination, a leading man was almost too titillating for him to endure. Um, I never had that problem because I was always kind of somewhat inept around ladies, even though sometimes I would try and feign that I was cool and suave. Um, but on most of those competitions, Doc always won. And that was, that was, um, that was an accepted and standing joke on the show. Gotcha. But, but that was, but again, that was, that was the core of the show that, that you went on that show to find romance. And mm -hmm. as I said, when we first began the show, all of the romance occurred between guest stars as the show evolved and the regular cast became more instrumental and more popular then we started having romances. And uh, so consequently, whether it was me or Ted or Bernie or, or Lauren or, or Gavin, uh, I mean, I, I wrote, um, let's see, I, I know I wrote a romance for Gavin. I wrote one for myself. Um, and is that with Jill St. John? Yeah, that was the one with Jill St. John. That was, <laughs> I was going to um, ask you, no, I, I was, was very impressed with that, that episode. Was not written. Yeah, well, I, I, I did not write that with Jill St. John in mind. That was not something gotcha. that you that you got to do. Um, I, did, I did write an episode for Gavin, uh, which was considered to be a May-December romance, and he was going to supposedly become smitten with a much younger, very vibrant almost counterculture type. And the person I had in mind for that was Karen Valentine. Um, if you you remember Karen Valentine, right? Karen Valentine. I believe so. That sounds room familiar. 222. And I oh. mean, she was on, she was on everything forever. Gotcha. Um, yes. Anyway, so that's, that's who I had in mind. And Karen had been on the show a time or two. Well, they wound up casting Samantha Egger, who was about 20 years older than, um, but that happened all the time, you know, whatever you <laughs> conceived of was usually countered by casting and, and, and yes. very often it was because they were going after a particular name or, um, somebody of note for one reason or another. But, uh, it was true that as the show evolved, the romances of the regular cast became as, um, really as as central to the success of the show as any of the romances that occurred among passengers. And that was just one of the dividends of us being a hit and the, the regular company becoming um, very popular themselves. Now, Fred, s some of this was done uh, on a studio lot, right? Maybe oh, yeah, in the no, cabins? No, no. Yes. no, no. We, had, we had two sound stages. At, first, we were at 20th Century Fox, and then we moved to a smaller studio on Melrose called Hollywood General. And we had two huge sound stages. And one, of course, would have the choral dining room and the Acapulco Lounge 
and the purser's lobby, which were our large uh, sets for uh, the um, the large group scenes that we did every week. We always had like 35 or 40 extras on the show. And then the other soundstage was, was all of the cabins and whatever swing set we might need if we had to create something. Um, but no, no, we, and, and as, as, as I said, 80% of the show, if not more, was done in uh, a hermetically sealed environment, a soundstage. Um, but of course, the, at the same time, um, we did go out for usually six weeks to two, two, two months at a time uh, to shoot on location. You know, Fred, when Jill Wheeling was added to the cast as Captain Steubing's long-lost daughter, Vicky, mm-hmm. I thought it added more dimension to the show. And uh, I just have to say, especially just when she first arrived, very talented young lady, really giving a strong and impressive performance from the get-go. Well, still is. I mean, Jill's now 50-something. Um but she had been uh, a favorite of Aaron's. She was on a very short-lived show about young kids called Friends. Not, of course, the friends you're familiar with, but kind of the pre-Friends friends. And that had been one of Aaron's few flops. It only ran, I don't know, maybe a season, maybe half a season. But, and I, Gavin tells this story all the time, and he tells it much better than I. Um, but Jill came along, I think, well, you'd know this better cause you're watching the show. Was she there by the fourth season? Yes. Um, okay. and the third, you know, okay. she made an appearance, but then she came back several yeah, okay. episodes later. All right. Well, if it's season three, then, then here's pretty much what happened. Um, you'll need to corroborate with Gavin McLeod on this, but, but I'd love to, from what, from what I recall. Aaron uh, and Doug went to Gavin and said, you know, we're thinking of adding um, a child to the cast, the captain's daughter. And of course there had been that episode that you noted where she'd appeared, but it was almost a throwaway. But Aaron wanted to um, revive that idea, that concept, because it would, they thought it would make the captain a little bit more humanizing. You know, when he first arrived, Captain Steubing was really kind of a stuffed shirt and a tight ass and a severe disciplinarian. And, and the, the whole purpose was to soften him a little bit. And they thought, well, the perfect way to do that is to make him a parent. And of course it worked. And so th- that's how Jill got on the show. Um, and she really just transferred from this short-lived series, Friends, to The Love Boat. And, of course, she became a fixture almost immediately. Um, and um, along with the five of us, the original five, she really is now uh, as much a fixture as any of us. Well, thank you for sharing that. And and you know what? This is a perfect tie-in to what I wanted to bring up with you, Fred, is that, you know, I think of those dramatic, heartfelt moments where, you know, uh, father and daughter are, are, are reuniting and she's going to get to stay on, on the boat and live with him. And, and, and that's one of the things I love about the love boat. 
um, there's a phrase I love about the love boat, and that is that despite the humor, right, and the the good naturedness, I, I always look forward to those dramatic moments, and you are no exception. Um, I will say, for example, there was a character that was faking an illness to get out of a marriage. But when Mm -hmm. he went to see the doctor, it turned out that he had a serious illness. And Bernie's tone, you know, how he usually is, right? Well, Mm -hmm. it got dead serious. And he, you know, it felt more like I was watching a drama. And I always really admired that. But with you, I think of Ethel Merman and your mom. And I believe it was her second visit after your character's father passed away. Yeah, and you, you had a nice moment there where, where I think it was near the end of the episode. I think it was you and Ted talking mm-hmm. by the pool. And wow, you I mean, Fred, you just uh, you were just pulling my heartstrings. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that because that's probably one of the episodes that I never watched okay. <laughs> uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I will say that I think one of the things and this was something that Aaron and Doug figured out very early on. Um, and of course the critics made fun of it. They thought it was banal and, and smarmy and, and unnecessarily perhaps saccharine and melodramatic. But one of the things that sustained the show, comedy, romance, locations, beautiful people, notwithstanding was the heart. And, and the interesting thing about the show to me was that when it began to be marketed overseas, whether it would be, uh, what was it in France, Croisier Samuz, uh, in Mexico, Barca de Amor, um, Greek, Topliotis Agapis. All of these shows, of course, had subtitles, but you really didn't need to understand the language to get the story. And I think that was one of the surprising dividends of the show's international success is that heart translated across multiple languages and was usually much more pictorial than verbal. And, and consequently, I think that's what kept the show moving around the world and, and became uh, successful in almost every country. The only two countries that I know where love boat was really not a success were Japan and Great Britain. It was a huge success in Australia, hmm. but not in London, not in, not in England. Um, and the Germans loved it so much, they actually tried to rip it off and create a show called Traumschiff, which means okay. dreamship. Okay. Um, I was but, not aware uh, of this. It, uh, it crashed and burned, and I think that's because the Germans oh. said, no, we like, we like Love Boat the way it is. Um, so Can't beat the real no. thing. No. So most people, most people wanted the real thing and they got the real thing. You know, Fred, uh, now switching back to the, the, the comedic side, I just wanted to bring up a moment that perfectly in my mind states clearly how talented I, I just think that you are. Uh, the situation was an underage couple that had somehow booked uh, the honeymoon suite, but they mm-hmm. were underage. And I don't even think they were, I mean, they weren't married even. Well, the Captain Steubing gave Gopher the responsibility to keep them apart mm-hmm. because of one of them was related to the, um, you know, the ship, the ship lines um, family. And we, boy, we have to make sure that we handle this right. And, okay. and you, you Gopher came in. <laughs> so they're in the honeymoon suite and your character kept interrupting them over and over, but not just as gopher. 
you put yourself in disguise. And one of them was this painter. You were going to paint the entire room and you mm-hmm. had some sort of accent. Um, and, and you were, were absolutely hysterical. Well, I, again, <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I'm not sure I ever saw the show, but it is, it is true that after a while, you know, once, once the writers became familiar with the five of us and then the six of us, when Jill joined and our characters and our range and our talents and our proclivities, they started writing for us. And in my case, the actors, uh, the, the writers began creating um, characters for me that had had accents. I mean, I remember I played an Italian guy when we were in Rome. Um, and, you know, this, this would be entirely politically correct, incorrect now. But in one show, I can't even remember what season it was. It doesn't make any difference. But Marion Mercer was on the show. And I think, unless I'm mistaken, I actually played an Indian. I mean, an East Indian. And, and okay. you know, it was almost Peter Sellers' time with that stuff. I don't think you could get away with that now. Um, gotcha. And uh, I know we, we, we actually shot uh, at a studio in, not in Tokyo, but just outside of Tokyo, where they were shooting samurai movies. And they got us all decked out as samurai actors and geishas and i don't they probably cut that now because that would be considered uh, terribly politically incorrect but at the time it was very funny um but yeah i mean those, those were the kinds of things that we did um there was one show that i'm, I'm not even sure that'll even wind up on cbs access where it was kind of a walter mitty thing where i played a whole bunch of different characters including james bond and uh, oh, wow. a couple of others. I haven't but seen that yet. You, yeah. I'm not sure you will. I think that was one of those rare 90 minute shows that we did that, uh, probably never got recycled cause it didn't really fit into the format that well. Um, mm. anyway, anyway, uh, that was just one, again, that was one of the things that you get when your show's a hit and your characters are popular and they, they start, they start listening um, to you as an actor and a performer and a contributor. Um, whereas in the first season, they're really just trying to find their, their sea legs to use a euphemism. Well, before I get to a, a final question I have for you about your time on the love boat, I, I just thought of one on the fly here, Fred. Uh, right. Probably the way the gopher would. You know how he used to think on the fly when uh, many times. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, uh, not, I'm not sure I would describe that as thinking, but go ahead. <laughs> well, he knew how to get out of a few jams anyway. But I, I will tell you uh, two things. One is I was just thinking about all the writing that you were sharing with me and in, in, in the scenarios. Mm-hmm. You know, also about the love boat was the sense of fun that, that took you even to places you didn't never expected. I'll give you an example. Early on in the show, when they had a character who had a disguise that looked entirely like Captain Stooping, and he would walk around. Of course, it was Gavin in those yeah. moments, but they actually had a shot with his back to to the camera, and the mask comes off, and it really does look like it's coming off. And I'm like, now that's just crazy fun to me. Yeah. 
No, that may mean, again, you, 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 you get a certain latitude and playfulness when a show becomes a hit and you can, you can expand your boundaries a little bit. Um, that, uh, that, that character, I, I think that was Gavin's somewhat ne'er-do-well brother or cousin, right? It was, I believe, well, well, he would show up later, but uh, I remembered uh, Fred. It was it was uh, they were jewel thieves. Remember, they were trying oh, okay. to uh, dig a hole into the safe area or something, and one of them would put on that disguise. Okay, um, yeah, all right. And he, and now, he kept saying he had a sore throat. Yeah, all right. Um, <laughs> you're losing me because I'm not sure I ever saw that one either. So. <laughs> well, it's you know, early on. I believe it's season one. Show now, Stephen, so I can just keep up with you. <laughs> And then you can give me a call and we can discuss it later. Yeah, yeah. Well, Fred, I have a question for you that's probably better to ask you now than, let's sure. say, decades ago. Especially mm-hmm. after you described your training earlier on in our conversation. Your extensive yep. training, I should say. I, I, I mean, Fred, uh, I mean, your co-stars were, are just so talented as well. But when it comes to the guest stars, the really big names, people mm-hmm. who are thought of highly in the world of acting... Did you notice anything particular about their approach with their work during scenes? Well, yes. First of all, you have a level of talent that is um, above what most people can aspire to. So you have to, you have to acknowledge that. I mean, I remember, you. have you seen the show that Tom Hanks did as a young guy? Fred, are you ready for this? I watched it last night. Okay. Well, you see a guy like Tom Hanks and you say, okay, this guy, this guy's a superstar. It's, it's like seeing a guy like Tom Mm. Seaver break into the major leagues. There are pitchers and then there are guys that are essentially going to rule the roost. And, uh, you know, whether it was a young guy who was just coming up like Tom Hanks at the time, who was on that show, Bosom Buddies. And then, of course, yes. broke out into a huge film uh, career. Mm-hmm. Or whether it's these, these veterans um, who had decades of experience and ledger domain like Vincent Price or Ethel uh, or Helen Hayes um, or any of the, the great, great comedians that wound up doing the show, like Red Buttons and Phil Foster and, and uh, Sid Caesar and, and Milton Berle. Um, and mm. one of the things that always stood out to me was how disciplined and relaxed they were at the same time. They were always very much involved in what they were doing in the scene. But they were never so intense about it that it affected what they did in the scene. So they had a a perfect mixture of being involved and available or intense and relaxed at the same time. And that's, you see that in great sports too, particularly in golf. Um, And that's one of the things I noticed when I took up golf when I was in my late 60s. I, I said, you know, this is a lot like acting. You have to be very relaxed and very focused uh, and involved at the same time. And uh, if, you, if you think too much, if you let your head rule you, 
you're going to screw up. You're not going to give the performance that you want. And that, that's what I always admired. And if I could emulated, um, the performers that, that came across, um, uh, our decks when we were, when we were shooting. Well, just so many people, I have to tell you, Fred, that I'm watching episodes and just, um, it's just going, wow, you know, when you know what happens to people down the road in real life sure. or, or you think about their accomplishments. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very sentimental experience for me. And Fred, I have to tell you, of course, this is because it's years later, but I, I just, uh, obviously, I think you can tell I really love acting. I, it, mm -hmm. I just love seeing the talents of so many people. And your answer is something I will always remember. So thank you for sharing that. Sure, sure. Well, I wanted to conclude, Fred, with this question. Speaking of sentimental, uh, okay. I know that you you guys still keep in touch with each other. But, I mean, looking back today, Fred, what would you say that you missed the most about actually working with your co-stars? Well, one of the things that I think you begin to first appreciate, and then if you're lucky enough and the show runs long enough, cherish, is the community. Um, that you develop on a long running show. And sometimes that can create all kinds of terrible frictions. I mean, you've probably heard all the stories about internecine warfare that went on various shows and how actors would, um, yes. come to blows. Uh, one of the, we used to be on the Fox lot across from mash and mash was notorious for that kind of thing. Um, but in our case, we, and I'm talking about the, the six of us now, very quickly evolved from community into family. Um, and I think the reason for that is, and if this was not intentional at the time, but it, but it turned out to be um, a tremendous byproduct of the way the show was conceived, is none of us, none of the five and six regulars, even Gavin as the captain, was considered to be the breakout star. Gavin, of course, was the first among equals, but, but there was a profound difference between that and somebody who headlines a show. And because we were pretty much all co-equals and really profited from the way we supported one another as co-equals, that, I think, created that that familial environment that exists to this day. I mean, Gavin just turned 90 and we all just did a big birthday thing for him online. And uh, that I think Stephen is somewhat rare. I mean, there are, you've, you've wow. talked to people. I remember hearing some of your conversations with, uh, with Patrick Duffy. And I know there were people, oh, there were friendships you. on those shows, but I don't, I don't think there are many shows that had the actual family cohesiveness that we have. And, you know, that translates into things today. Ted Lange and I were doing a play together uh, a couple of years ago. We were supposed to do it last year, but of course the uh, pandemic got in the way and, and we've, we frequently uh, see one another. I, I don't get out to California as much as I used to, but when I usually see one or two of those folks, Jill or Bernie, when I'm out there, um, Cindy, Lauren Tweez lives in Seattle. We speak to her from time to time. Um, and that's, that's somewhat rare. And I think the reason 
it it survived is because we all knew what our place was and none of us really had the opportunity to let our egos run away with us. Well, that is a beautiful answer, Fred. I'm glad I asked that. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And I, I just have to tell you that uh, this has just been such an honor for me personally. I've enjoyed every moment. I certainly hope I get to speak to some of your co-stars. And if I do, Fred, I'm going to tell them how much uh, I enjoyed speaking with you today. Well, I'm, you know, I think they'll be glad to talk to you. I mean, they're, they're, they're aging out just the way I am, Stephen. They've got a lot of time on their hands, so you should be able to get to them. <laughs> well, Fred, thank you for being my special guest, and um, I, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Sure. All right. Glad to do it. Nope. What if I promoted you to assistant person? You got a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, wait a minute. What's the promotion? I was the assistant purser. The promotion is from the unemployment line to having a job. Phil Livingston said that you passed up his offer. Thank you, Captain. It's good to have you back. Yeah. Uh, sir, about my larger cabin... Uh, just drop a note in the suggestion box. I'll uh, think about it. Well, sir, you got rid of the suggestion box. Oh. Well, then that takes care of that, doesn't it? That will be all, Mr. Smith. and Beyond Podcast is produced, edited, and hosted by Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening.